The Long War Journal is a website by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. The FDD is an organization, think tank really, that focuses on terrorism throughout the world. The Long War is the global war on terrorism started under George W. Bush after September 11th. There isn't a huge focus on Afghanistan in the media, so to really get stories about how the U.S. is faring in its efforts against terrorism, you have to turn to these smaller websites. One of the reasons for starting this podcast is to draw attention to this decade-and-a-half-long war. The Long War Journal is pretty well respected, and last week, at the end of March, they ran a story on the Taliban and how much of Afghanistan is under their control. According to the Taliban's propaganda arm, the Voice of Jihad, the Taliban control 34 districts and contest an additional 167 districts. So contested districts refer to areas where the Taliban controls between 40 to 99% of the land. In the south, where this podcast has been focused on, the Taliban claim to control or contest nearly all the provinces, with the exception of Kandahar province, where they still claim to contest about half of the province. Aruzgan and Helmand are entirely contested or controlled. The east and northeast of the country, and northern provinces like Kunduz, are also contested. If you go to the Long War Journal, you can look at the map, and it doesn't look good. So, it's easy to write off the Taliban's media as pure propaganda, and for the most part, it is. I mean, you hear the term fake news all the time, and Voice of Jihad is the definition of fake news. But according to the Long War Journal, the Taliban aren't too far off in their statement. The Long War Journal references a Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, uh, the abbreviation for that is SIGAR, report from February 17th that says the Taliban control or contest 171 districts. The Taliban claim 211. So that's a lot of references to the Long War Journal, but it really is an interesting report. It shows the Taliban are gaining ground, and this is after 15 years. 15 years of war and fighting and death and destruction in a country on the other side of the world. And every day, the Taliban seem to push closer to a provincial capital. The Taliban have taken Kunduz in the past and threatened Tarankot and Aruzgan just last year. They still threaten those cities. And there is always a risk that the white flag of the Taliban will fly over a provincial capital and earn them a massive propaganda victory. They may not be able to hold a capital city for a long time, but it doesn't really matter. And as the war progresses, the Taliban seem to do better. International forces are at their lowest level, and the Afghan security forces just aren't prepared to protect their country. But the government still has more troops and air superiority. So how are the Taliban able to gain ground? Well, there are a few reasons for this. The most important factor, though, is probably that the Afghan forces lack morale. And this lack of morale stems from a corrupt system and a vague end goal. This is Green and White. start with the problem of pay. It's hard to fight or get people to fight if you don't pay them. For the average Afghan male, farming or warfare are really the only two possibilities in the country. So it's no wonder that many Afghans sign up for the police or the army to get a steady government paycheck in a country where job prospects are almost non-existent. 
you probably get your pay directly deposited into a checking account via electronic fund transfer. And in the same way we take roads for granted in the West, banking services are something we don't really give enough credit. Banking and electronically transferring money are so ubiquitous in modern society that we don't really think about it at all. But in Afghanistan, it is estimated that less than 10% of the population have a bank account. So, despite campaigns by Western forces to sign soldiers and policemen up for electronic funds transfer, money is still distributed using archaic payroll systems and cash. While the Afghan army has been largely successful at paying most of its soldiers electronically, the police are an entirely different story. So, let's say you work at a checkpoint in, uh, we'll keep the rolling theme of Aruzgan province. Let's say you are a policeman and you work with a few other local police in the middle of nowhere. You're part of the Afghan local police, men recruited and stationed around their home district. You don't have a bank account or a cell phone or any way to receive electronic funds transfer. Now, you still have to get paid, but who's going to pay you? Well, most likely that's some sort of Afghan police officer stationed at the district center, and the government put him in charge of your payroll. The government knows you're not enrolled in an EFT system, so let's just say that Captain Wally John is your, quote, trusted agent. The government will give Captain Wally John a stack of cash, and he will then distribute your salary when he comes to visit your checkpoint. If you're lucky, he comes and gives you your salary in full on a regular schedule. And that's the best case scenario. Maybe he comes and he gives you some money, but you can't read and you can't write and you don't know that Captain Wally is skimming money off the top of your check and every one of your comrades checks. Maybe Captain Wally doesn't show up at all or only irregularly. Maybe he deserted a month ago and no one is tracking that you out in the middle of nowhere are not getting paid. And on top of not getting paid, every night the Taliban harass your remote checkpoint. You aren't very well trained. You're local police after all. You were recruited and promised training at a later date. As long as you could man that checkpoint right now. Because let's just say Rahimullah Khan's men all deserted last week. So you come under fire and, not knowing any better and armed with a PKM machine gun, unload on unseen fighters in a tree line. And this has happened so often that you're running out of ammo. And Captain Wally still hasn't showed up to pay you or give you more ammo. Now, winter is coming, and you're hungry. You'll send a policeman into the village, occasionally, to beg for food from the locals. But they don't give you much, and word gets out that you haven't been paid or fed in forever. So you've had enough, and you and your friends just go home one night. You don't tell anybody. And there isn't some shame that you deserted the local police. The locals, your tribe, and friends and family know how terrible it is for you. They know the Taliban is out there, and they know your safety and well-being is the most important thing. No one blames you because there isn't any real sense of nationalism. Especially in southern Afghanistan, the average Pashtun sees himself as a member of his family first and his tribe second. The concept of Afghanistan, or the country as a whole, seems distant. What does the average man care about other tribes and ethnic groups he may never meet or interact with? To him, the fall of Kunduz in the north is a northern problem for Tajiks and Uzbeks to deal with. There is a saying that goes, me against my brother, my brother and I against my cousin, and my brother, my cousin, and I against the world. It has many variations, but it holds true in Afghanistan. Many people in the country don't even view the border as legitimate. The current border with Pakistan is based on the Duran Line, created by the British Empire in 1893. 
that supposedly marked where British influence ended. The creation of Pakistan in the mid-1900s resulted in Afghanistan and Pakistan being separated by an imaginary line that split up Pashtun families. People regularly cross the border to visit family and border security is only loosely enforced and border police on both sides are prone to corruption. We have a tendency to view the world through Western eyes and with a false sense that if something works out for us, it will work out for everyone. We don't think about the years of religious wars that plagued Europe and the eventual transformation of a feudal society into a nationalist one. Western people went through these historical periods, but not everyone in the world subscribes to that way of thinking. An American in California considers himself American just as a man in North Carolina might. They may hold entirely different religious, political, and social beliefs, but they see each other as a citizen of the same country. The people of Afghanistan, particularly the Pashtuns, don't view their country the same way. Tribalism still rules Afghanistan, and Western nations have only succeeded in painting a very thin layer of nationalism that's cracking and coming apart with every passing year. So, we've gone over pay, supplies, and a lack of nationalism. Those three reasons alone account for the majority of desertions. Corruption, too, plays a large part in the lack of morale and why the Taliban have gained significant territory since the international forces drawdown. I mentioned earlier how corrupt police commanders and these trusted agents in charge of pay will skim money from soldiers' salaries. Well, that corruption is not limited to just taking money off the top. In Afghanistan, there are thousands of ghost soldiers. A ghost soldier is someone who exists on paper and collects a salary without actually serving in the military or existing in the first place. For example, if a corps commander claims he has 7,000 soldiers, he can collect 7,000 paychecks. In actuality, he may only have half that number. And there are two big problems with this situation. First, the American taxpayer in the Western world fund these troops and expect them to be working and well-trained. Instead, corrupt leaders pocket that money, and when the time comes to fight the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or ISIL, they underperform. Then, when they fail in their task, investigations reveal there just weren't as many soldiers as the commanders had claimed. During my time in southern Afghanistan, the 215th Corps commander, basically the man in charge of all Afghan army forces in Helmand, was General Moeen Fakir. President Ghani appointed General Fakir to head up one of the most war-torn and corrupt provinces in the country. Fakir was appointed when some officials claimed that 40% of the 215th Corps was made up of ghost soldiers. And in March 2016, only three months after his appointment, Fakir claimed that he had already brought greater government control to the province. He also claimed to have rid the Corps of its ghost soldier problem. Then, the rest of 2016 happened and the Taliban surrounded the capital city of Lashkargah and killed many 215th Corps soldiers. Others deserted their post. And just last week, Sangin, a strategic district in Helmand, fell to the Taliban. But for all his boasting, Fakir was fired in late 2016. And at the end of March 2017, only a week ago, he was arrested on charges of corruption. So what did General Fakir do? Well, he stole money from the Afghan government. It's a common enough charge, but this money was supposed to buy food for his soldiers. Now, remember back to earlier when we were talking about soldiers going into local villages to source food. You may be asking yourself, how can we spend so much money training and supplying the Afghan forces, but they are starving and walking off their checkpoints? Well, you have your answer. 
If Fakir is convicted, he will be just one of many people to steal money and misuse funds intended to keep his soldiers supplied. Fakir is also charged with misusing and stealing fuel. Now, you might say this is a lesser crime than not feeding the troops, but remember that Afghan forces use fuel to power generators, which they use to power remote outposts. I mentioned President Ghani in another episode of this podcast and how he ran on a platform of anti-corruption. And I do believe that Ghani believes ousting these corrupt individuals is important to the well-being of Afghanistan. I agree with the man, but General Fakir and others who have been charged recently were appointed by Ghani. These were not necessarily Karzai's men. Not that Karzai necessarily believed in putting corrupt men in charge, either. But he just didn't make anti-corruption his primary focus. And who knows? These men could have been model citizens before becoming corrupted in their positions. But if Ghani continues to appoint people like Fakir, morale will only further deteriorate. And it's not just Fakir. This corruption is deeply rooted in the military institutions in Afghanistan. You have leaders stealing fuel and money for food and skimming money from soldiers' paychecks. You have unqualified men buying high-ranking positions. In fact, a former Helmand Provincial Police Chief, Abdul Rahman Zerjong, is also under investigation for selling district police chief positions, according to the New York Times. Helmand is, after all, the center of the world's poppy production, and everyone wants a piece of that pie. The Taliban want to grow it to fund their insurgency, but district police chiefs want to control it too. They threaten poppy farmers with the destruction of their fields if they don't pay off the police. Even individual soldiers from wealthier families may buy themselves positions at checkpoints along the known opium smuggling routes to extort smugglers carrying opium and heroin. And at the end of the day, it's hard to blame anyone. Afghanistan's history is a history interrupted, as author Tamim Ansari says in his work Games Without Rules. There is no stability, and there are no guarantees. The political ch climate, it changes about every day, and every generation with each new invader or warlord that pops up. So when there is an opportunity to improve yourself and your family, you take it. The idea of a nation is foreign, and your wife and kids need to eat and have heat in the winter and clothes on their backs. And if it means running drugs and hurting people, well, they aren't family. This has been episode four of Green and White, stories from Afghan politics and history. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast and learned something today. And as always, this podcast exists to raise awareness for America's longest war now in its 16th year. Uh, funny story, well, not really funny, but in 2008, I took an English class at the University of Tennessee, and the topic was espionage. In it, we read Steve Cole's excellent book, Ghost Wars, about the CIA funding the Mujahideen and pre-9-11 Afghanistan. That was in 2008, seven years after the war kicked off. No one I knew had a smartphone, and internet access wasn't ubiquitous, and those echo chambers we've all come to love and live in hadn't even really formed yet. And I remember enjoying the book, and the whole idea of war in Afghanistan seemed so far away. Funny how life works out, I guess. Thanks for listening.